Here we go. Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ Network, in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce. And this is going to be so great. Daniel Palmer is here and his book, The Perfect Daughter. Oh, you got to read this. This is so unbelievably fantastic. A thriller that explores the truth or lies behind a teenage girl's multiple personality disorder. And I read The New Husband. I read everything you wrote. Seriously. Thank so you. good morning Thank and welcome. Friend. I'm so glad you made it. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, so. it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm uh I'm actually sitting on a back deck. The sky is the perfect shade of blue. My dog is right oh, beside no, I'm me, jealous. sunning himself. <laughs> I have a cup of coffee, so I am uh, ready to go, raring to go. Happy to talk with you, Fran. I think I'm going to text my husband in the other room and tell him to bring me some Javalia. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's my lifeline. Yeah, Javalia, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, say, but, I'm, I'm a black coffee drinker. I don't... I, me too. Uh, you know, me I drink... Too. Black coffee, uh, Lately, it. I've been drinking Pete's, Pete's coffee, the really? major Dickinson blend. Um, and I started using a percolator. And I found that the percolator makes a really amazing cup of coffee. So... That's that's been my so I just do pizza in the morning and that's it's just a great way to start the day. Yeah, well, I use the coffee pods, but you know it's funny because we got them from a few different places, and they, the Colombian Duvalier coffee is great. It's just that some boxes are better than others, so we might actually yeah. try a regular coffee percolator. Yeah, but I haven't found a brand oh, yeah. that I like yet. So uh, I'll text you mine. I'll text you mine. You can try that out. You, you got you got it because I want to know. <laughs> All right. This this book is really interesting, and each time you read write one, you have a different mental illness. And I'm doing something on August 25th with, believe it or not. My college professor that taught me how to read past the pages, that's why I get all the answers, get the questions that nobody else can figure out. Um, so on just August 25th, we're going to be talking about the medicalization of education and why so many people are misdiagnosed with learning disabilities and other disabilities. So I'm uh, excited about that. Yeah, and he's my professor from a million, my reading professor from uh, oh, that's great. Co- college. Yeah, he told me I was a genius back then. I said, it's your fault because you drove me crazy. He, oh, my God. Ah. So, yeah, yeah Fran, I don't know anybody who absorbs material quite like you do. Uh, you've, <laughs> you've read a lot of my books. You may have read all of my books. And you always – I read it, and I'm like, well, that she just – there's not a piece of it that you miss as you're going through. No. And you read – 
voraciously and to read that quickly, to read that prodigiously and to retain all of that information is quite remarkable. So I I hear it. Yeah, I guess your professor was right. You must be yeah, operating yeah, at he some did. higher he, level. I, I didn't think I had it. And um, the first day I walked into class, he gave us five papers that we had to write. And you had to write the term paper on an index card, 8 by 11. And I looked at yeah. him and called this guy's out of his freaking mind. When I got it back two weeks later, he said to the class, there were 35 of us all educators, he said, the only three of you in this class that have brains and the rest of you were really not too bright. Oh, he was rotten. He was so uh, mean. I was uh, like, holy yeah. crap. I said, oh, my I, God. I tell you and this. Then he, I'll tell you this, Fran. 100% guaranteed I would not have been one of the three with the brains. I, I would know. have been the guy in the back <laughs> going, what's going on here? What's happening? I wasn't a very good English student. I wasn't ever meant, I never even thought I would, for for sure I never imagined writing anything anybody would pay to read and certainly never thought I would have carved out a career that's going on its 12th year now and my uh, my 13th novel published. So that's yeah, kind of remarkable. That's amazing. That That is so amazing, I know. No, he called me up, and there were three of us, and he said, one of you got a 10, and the other two got nine and three quarters, and he looked at me. He said, not only did you get a 10, but I'm picking your articles from now on, and I'm not picking the short ones. You're going to do the ones that are 15 and 20 pages. And I looked at him, and I go, what did I do wrong to walk into this room? And every week, he would call on me first to answer questions from the week before. He taught me the two books that we used. I actually memorized them because I knew better than not to. And until this day, I could tell you what they said. It's scary. It's his fault. Yeah, that's scary. So, I mean, Brian, Brian, you got some kind of special wiring there. But regardless of the brain chemistry that makes all that possible, it's really, it's really powerful and important to have people like your college mm-hmm. professor become your mentors and guides in this life. Um, so it's uh, quite fortunate that you encountered this person who – probably was instrumental in helping to shape how you saw the world and, and kind of your your experience in it. So uh, good that you guys are still in touch and still, you know. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I found him three weeks ago on LinkedIn, and he emails me every day. And he even sent me uh, his talking so. points for the show, and I go like, great, no, I don't have to think about anything. You did it for me. <laughs> but nah, anyway. That's great, Fran. Yeah, so this book is is, is um a different is different. What mental disorder did you pick for this one? And this is really interesting. This uh so you know, I try not to think of it as I'm going to, you know, mental disorder of the week. I try to yeah, think of no. it as what what would be an aspect of a character that would lend itself to an interesting story. And yeah. if it happens to be mental illness, then I, I'm like, okay, let's go, let's go down this road, but let's not use it in a tropey way. So, you know, sometimes thrillers have used this particular disorder that I write about in The Perfect Daughter, with, uh, which is called dissociative identity disorder. And it's the uh, updated label for what was more commonly known as multiple personality disorder. And it's, you know, been used quite frequently in books and TV over the years, you know, The Three Faces of Eve, uh, that movie Split that M. Night Shyamalan produced not too long ago. 
Um, and obviously, you know, the true life story of Sybil, where, you know, although now there's some questions of the veracity of that um, particular re- retelling, but it's obviously kind of ingrained itself in our popular culture because it's quite fascinating to think that this thing that we all cling to that defines ourself mm. can actually exist in multiple states within one person and that the different states may not have complete and total awareness of the other states and they could be completely different from this you know primary self that we've come to think of as our identity so i thought well this you know rather than use it as kind of a reveal like oh the character did this because she has this undiagnosed condition i said let's just start with the condition let's start with a a really heinous crime and let's mm-hmm. see let's see what we can explore both in terms of a mystery kind of a who did it or a why did it in this case because the character's guilt appears to be without a doubt she's found in the home of her birth mother covered in blood holding the murder weapon um so it appears that this young 16 year old girl is guilty so the book really offers an exploration of the condition the family dynamics around mental health and it looks at um sort of the treatment of mental health while also wrapping it around this bigger jigsaw puzzle of a of a story. So it was a lot to juggle. Yeah, it bothers me because a lot of people with mental health, there's a way to treat them, and sometimes they mistreat them and don't treat them the right way. They automatically assume that they need all sorts of crazy treatment. So I know you yeah, get well, a, lot, a lot of yeah, – that's what scares me yeah, about yeah. I, I did a tremendous amount of research for the book, um, both yeah. talking to psychiatrists, um, but also really using as much first source material as I could get my hands on, which was really listening to people. You know, especially YouTube's amazing because mm-hmm. people post all kinds of content um, out there. So I could kind of watch videos of people who have the DID diagnosis and talk as they talk about their condition, they talk about the myths, they talk about the stigmas, and they also talk about the um, oftentimes misdiagnosis. So they'll be labeled as um, Mm -hmm. depressed or they'll be labeled as, uh, you know, anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. And part of the problem is that within the psychiatric community itself, dissociative identity disorder or DID for short, isn't uh, entirely an embraced diagnosis, even though it exists in the diagnostic manual, which is sort of the Bible for psychiatry, the DSM-5, DID is right there, Um, but it's still a polarizing diagnosis within the psychiatric community itself. There's some who think that DID is really a, a mask for other psychiatric disorders, maybe borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, and uh, and that the actual manifestation of it, this idea of altered states or alters, if you will, is, is really a construct of the patient, and and they are they believe they have it, so it seems real to them, but they don't really have it, which is kind of an odd, you know, psychiatric catch twenty two. Mm-hmm. And so for people who really feel like, hey, they, I have this, and I know I have this, and I experience these fugue states, and I go into these moments where I can't remember what I did, and blah blah blah. 
uh, it feels very real to them. And the, psychiat- the psychiatrists who do believe in this condition are um, suspect that it affects about 1% to 2% of the population, which is the same percent of the population that suffers from schizophrenia. That's scary. So that's how prevalent she it actually is. She wasn't faking. I mean, there are some people that actually pretend to have more than one personality, too. And you suppose to, you know, that they don't always, they're not always really have. They just think they do. That's scary. So right. And so yeah, you have character. to you have to really know you have to really yeah, know how to know diagnose the condition. And, and yeah. uh, in this case, Dr. Mitch McHugh, the one of the characters in that story, he has to make this determination. So the mother, Grace, is convinced her daughter Penny has this condition. Mitch isn't bought in yet. Um, her previous doctor is convinced that she doesn't have yeah. it, and part of the story is Mitch kind of coming to his own conclusions about is she is she lying or is she is she telling the truth? Yeah. And 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 her and if it is a case of deception, that really alters the the trajectory of the of his work and ultimately the trajectory of the investigation into what happened on the night of this horrific murder. I know that was scary, but then we meet Grace, and she fi- she finds her, and why did she take her? And she didn't hesitate to take her. I mean, how many people could right. be somewhere like that and, and and grab a child and just take her home out of nowhere? That's scary. well, I think you know the uh, you know the the vision I had for the story really this moment. Um, I, in fact, I I kind of assumed the book might have started with this scene, but I ended up putting it in mm-hmm. later in the story. But I did have this this moment of how does this child come into this woman's life? And it's really she finds a girl abandoned in a park. So there's no parents around. She thinks she's going to see a parent. She thinks she's going to have to scold, kind of gently scold the parent who she imagines is got their attention locked on their phone and fails to notice their daughter has, you know, wandered off and is crying in the rain in this park, but there's no parent around. She then fears that there might be a body of a parent around. There's no body. She goes to the road to look for somebody who's looking for her. There's nobody looking for her. And so she then does what any smart person would do. Any logical thinking person would do. She calls the police. Of course, the police come, the ambulance comes. They take this girl to the hospital, and it's really at that moment when, you know, she discovers this girl's been abandoned, and she's been abandoned by her birth mother, um, and um, and she, Grace, really has this moment where she's always wished that she could mother a daughter. She has two sons of her own. She's worried about finances. She and her husband run a pizza place in Swampscott, Massachusetts. So money's tight. Yeah. And she's not sure she can take on the burden, but she's come to love this child. And so she works with Department of Children and Families and becomes a foster mom. And that opens up the pathway to adopting her. And she adopts this little girl who she then raises um, in her family, and they all kind of integrate and bond as a family. And it's not until later in her teen years, and this is common with DID, that the symptoms really start to surface. But when they look back on their lives, they, there, are, there are telltale signs that there was more happening in, in this young child's neurology than they were made aware of. So 
you know, I think it was by happenstance that this child came into Grace's life and, um, and she, you know, in Grace's mind, she was the perfect daughter for her. And that hence is really the title of, of, of the book. Not that she was perfect, yeah. but for Grace, it was perfect for her. That's scary. So she tell us about um, Penny and all of a sudden she had a whole bunch of personalities. When did they come to light? I mean, there's Penny, there's Chloe, and there's the strongest one, Ruby, and a few others. Well, yeah. Well, that's one of the tricky parts of this particular book is not only did I have the characters the general, you know, a cast of characters mm-hmm. in the story, but I had one character with multiple characters. So, you know, part of what I had to do was to, um, there, again, I go back to the kind of that metaphor mm-hmm. of juggling plates, which is sort of what writing a book can feel like. So I had the, um, you know, I had the, the mystery that I had to deal with. I had the mental diagnosis I had to deal with. I had the, the character development and the tensions and escalating stakes that I had to deal with, but I also had to present these various alters in a realistic fashion. And so, you know, there's, there's really, there's Penny, there's Ruby, there's Eve and there's Chloe. And what I did was essentially to say, okay, well, Penny is the girl that they found in the park and she's the girl that Grace believes, you know, she was raising. And then all of a sudden, they started meeting their first altar, um, and it was at uh, it was at breakfast one morning, and down comes Penny. But instead of talking like Penny, she's speaking in an English accent, and she's been a devoted reader of Harry Potter, and you know loved the world of J.K. Rowling. Who doesn't? And um, kind of they thought the family thought nothing of it they thought oh she's just doing imaginative play she's 11 years old at the time and she's just kind of play acting but it was very believable play acting and her brothers were like whoa this just is weird she's not giving it up she's holding on to this character and she does it all day she uses different words she just seems to know things that they're surprised that she knows and at night when you know, Grace goes to kiss her daughter goodnight and tuck her into bed. She says, um, she says to her, her mom, you know, don't call me Penny, call me Ruby. And that was sort of the first start. So I created, I really wanted to create characters that stood out and could be very distinguished from each other. So one was Penny, one was Ruby, who spoke in this British accent. Then there's Eve who's really this protector type personality. She's sort of a, a guardian. So she has a very caustic standoffish way about her. And uh, she, she really is there to protect Penny's psyche. Um, and the last one is uh, a girl named Chloe, who is a perfectionist mm. who really, really fears making mistakes. So those characteristics allowed me to give each of those personalities, each of those personas or alters as they're called uh, enough uniqueness so that they stood out on their own. Oh God! And and I guess one well, last point I would make is that when when Penny, the majority of the book, Penny is she's been arrested for this horrible murder. Yeah. And she spends she spends her time incarcerated in a in a mental institution that is uh, run by the Massachusetts prison system. Uh, so it's in this environment that that Eve takes over because Eve is the protector. So 
really the goal for Mitch is to crack through Eve to get to the other altars to try to figure out what potentially mm-hmm. happened because it's his belief that that Penny has parsed out the events of that night to her different altars and that the only way that yeah. he's going to get the answer to the mystery is to connect to these altars. But in order to do so, he has to get through the, the toughest personality of them all, and that's Eve. That was Ruby. So we have the problem is her father, and they think Jack and Ryan, and Ryan thinks that he she killed him, and he doesn't even want to go near her. He doesn't want to know her at all, whereas Jack has a little bit more compassion, and that's scary. So why does Ryan think that Penny killed or held her mother, killed her mother? Um, well, Ryan is under the impression that Penny doesn't have dissociative identity disorder. So Ryan, the yeah, brother, in this case, was used as a way of uh, was used as a way of kind of highlighting that polarizing aspect of DID. So if Penny doesn't have DID, then she killed her brother because uh, she killed her birth mother because she's crazy. And on top of yeah. on top of that um, on top of that presumption of guilt that she's lying and has the ID, there is a history where Penny has made violent threats and has plotted murder before. And this is through a friendship that she has with a girl named Mary. So there's evidence that says she's a psychopath, has always been a psychopath. And, mm. um, and so now, now we're, we're kind of getting that, that perspective through the character of Ryan. And I think Jack the dog wants heard, to come on the show. Oh, yeah. Dogs love, love radio. It's fine. <laughs> Bring out the dogs. Come out, dogs. You're all good. And so Jack, who's the other brother, is an important part of the, the story um, in terms of providing sort of a counterbalance to Ryan's view on his, on his sister, but also it's through Jack that we learn the history of Penny. We learn the evolution of her, of her mental condition. And we get the perspective of how her mental health has dramatically impacted the life of her family, Penny's family. So how does Grace feel about the fact that she's in prison? She doesn't believe that she's that crazy, does she? Well, I think Grace, she, she fights everything. I mean, she questions everything. Yeah, I mean, I to me, um, Grace, more or less, before before the opening of this book, so really the book opens up with a murder, and then we kind of are going to fast forward about a year and a half as Penny's in a locked mental, secured mental facility waiting trial. And um, in that time, Grace really is just expecting that her daughter's going to be found guilty. She doesn't really have much optimism. Um, You know, in the back of her mind flashes this question of, well, what if she's innocent? Could she be innocent? But the reality Mm. is there's no evidence that points to her innocence. So Grace more or Mm. less is resigned to the fact that she can't afford her daughter's defense and that her daughter's going to end up in prison for life. And really she's just grateful that Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty. And it's not until the story really gets going that that there's this 
spark in her that, uh, you know, through an, uh, an incident that happens at a, during a visit where she suddenly wonders, is there more to this than I know? Is there more to this than the police know? Is there more yeah. to this than the psychiatrist know? And so she goes on a quest, really, because that's what a lot of these books are. They're quest books. And she goes on a quest to find out the truth about what happened on the night her daughter was found covered in, the, in blood holding a knife with her birth mother's body nearby. And in order to get that answer, you know, I, you know my job as the writer is to make it hard. And my job is to make her determined and willing to risk everything for the truth. Um, and so some people, you know, I'm sure they'll read it and say, oh, I can't believe she risked herself you know, to find the tr- to find the truth. And I'm like, well, what do you want her to do? Just roll over and play dead? That's not a very interesting character. So Grace, I think, is a, is a strong woman, a mother determined and dedicated to help her daughter at any and all cost, even if it's to her own well-being. And she's in, she's locked away in this, in this psychiatric ward. Do the people that work there, the guards and men, but do they realize that she has more than one personality? And how do they deal with well, that? Well, I mean, they she's got her diagnosis, so I think, you know, um, they don't particularly care in these hospitals what your diagnosis is. They need to make sure that you're getting a treatment based on a treatment plan prescribed by an understaffed um, group of psychiatrists that you get um, your meals and that you're kept in a safe and secure um, place either while you're awaiting trial or um, this is your sentence. And these uh, facilities are really lacking funding, lacking in resources. And um, that was another kind of theme that I wanted to highlight in the in the story. And um, so they did the best they could. I made the character of uh, Dr. Mitch McHugh something of, you know, some people you know, would think he's an anomaly because he's also not only is he a psychiatrist, but he acts in a lot of ways like a psychologist would. Um, But he did a fellowship in in psychology and he's skilled at, at psychology. So he's kind of provides both services to the patients. And it's something that the staff and the director of the facility is grateful for because um, it's very helpful for to have somebody who can, look holistically at these patients who are, who are deeply suffering and would benefit not only from drug therapy, but from psychotherapy as well. Yeah, I like him. He's a good character. He actually cares. And a lot of people don't care. I mean, they're so quick to label kids with learning disabilities. And call, as a qualified person that can assess, a lot of times people are wrong, really wrong. That's really scary. Right. Sometimes it's just lack of education. So now we meet an interesting character, hmm, Navarro. Why does she befriend him? Why does she make him her lawyer? This guy, I don't know. Well, so it's a interesting. So she, she meets Navarro, um, Greg Navarro, in a kind of in a moment of happenstance when they get into a little fender bender, and he gives her his card, and you know. He yeah. he feels very contrite because it was it was his fault and he um, he he becomes a regular at her restaurant and so she knows him quite well and prior to her meeting of Navarro Penny got into some pretty serious trouble 
at school for making these threats that I, I mentioned to you earlier, where uh, she, she concocted a plan to commit murder and they wrote it out and uh, the, the school caught wind of it and there was, you know, the girls got arrested because it was a conspiracy to commit murder charge. And they had an attorney, and the attorney was very dismissive and not somebody that Grace liked and not somebody Grace wanted to work with. So when years later, when her daughter got arrested for a second time, this time for the act of committing murder, um, she didn't want to turn to that lawyer from from her previous – her daughter's previous um, arrest and – she remembers Navarro. She knows him. She likes him. She sees him at the restaurant, knows he specializes in defense, know he's up, knows he's up there on the North Shore where she lives, and she gives him a call, and he becomes sort of her, her savior, this guy who's really going to piece together a plan for Penny. And, um, and so that's how, that's how he enters into the picture. So he was a former district attorney. He's done a lot of lunches with a lot of mayors up on the North Shore. She's well experienced and uh, and great at defense. So, um, or I'm sorry, a de- not a district attorney, a, a former defense attorney, public defender. So he's with the uh, public defender's office, and so he's you know he's versed and gifted at at the art of defending uh, defending those who seem indefensible. And uh, and so in her mind, uh, Greg Navarro couldn't have come on the scene at a more appropriate time. Fran, you, your voice got very far away all of a sudden. Can you hear me? Not not as well as I could before. Okay. Well, who is the prosecutor, and why does he think he's going to win this case? Oh, so uh, he oh, really you know, does I had it on speakerphone really... for a minute. Okay. Oh, that's better. Yeah, so he, I think uh, Navarro's point um, is a very clear one, which is, you know, they're going to try to go for the insanity defense. It's a very hard defense to use. It's used in about a quarter of all cases, and about a quarter of those, it's successful. So it's it's not um, I'm sorry not even a quarter it's uh it's one one to two percent of cases try the insanity plea and uh, of those only a quarter are ever successful so it's very low probability um, there's m- multiple types of tests that can be employed to prove insanity every state offers a different uh, criteria or a different test that they will accept. Massachusetts happens to uh, use the model penal code test, which is sort of a, a very broad test for insanity that says, you know, if you cannot understand the criminality of your conduct, if you don't know, if you don't know, um, if you if you can't understand the criminality of your conduct and you're not sure that you've actually done anything wrong, then you may be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And so he believes that DID will offer a path forward um, 
for Penny to win uh, a not guilty by reason of insanity, but that doesn't mean she's going to be coming home. That just means she's going to be sentenced for a longer period of time at a mental hospital. That's even scarier for a kid. When that when somebody so, has mental like that, wouldn't when they get depending on how they're treated, wouldn't they get worse? In, in, well, in a lot of times, like and that? I do I do talk about that in the Perfect Daughter. A lot of times, uh, yeah. you know, you go into these hospitals and you don't get better, but you end up getting worse. And so it's uh, these treatments are very they're very complicated and. Uh, and an environment like that isn't always conducive to making you, um, you know, as a curative, um, you know, a place where you could you could overcome your 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 mental um, your mental illness. That's just scary. That's scary. Can I tell you? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I hope uh, I hope people will will get the book and check it out and visit me on the website at djpalmerauthor.com and um, they can find me on Facebook also at DJ Palmer Author. So I'm I'm well, always I hope online. everybody reads it. This, this is great. You. I think you know seriously. I have a million more questions, but as an educator, I I've seen students get misdiagnosed a lot. I've seen kids get misdiagnosed with dyslexia or even sometimes with mental illnesses or ADHD or acting out or whatever. A lot of times people are wrong and they're not really qualified to decide and they snap at it. Well, you know, my child's this or that and he needs to be here. That's really sad. So what happens every time she visits Penny? And then why is Grace made a target? That scared me too. When she um, was at the hospital. So, so why is why is Grace made a target? Was your question? Grace, Grace was a target. Yes, it's a, didn't well, somebody attack you know, her? I, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it really just it's it's really uh, kind of the the way these stories often unfold is yeah is uh you know think of it like. Um, there's a, a uh, at the center of the story is this the, the truth, and in order to get to the truth, you have to peel back the layers of the story, and there's guards at every layer of the story, and the more that you peel, the closer to the truth, the more somebody's going to want to protect that and guard it, and the the more the character will find themselves in peril, and the question becomes. At what point do you just say, ah, enough is enough, or at what point are you willing to push beyond all all boundaries and and put yourself in harm's way to get to that kernel of truth? That's scary. So who are the people she accuses, and who turns up at the pizza shop, and why? And her son is not happy with her when she does that. Yeah, there's, uh, there's uh, characters from the past that yeah. may play a central role in the future and one of those characters is a guy named Vincent Rapino who's a mm-hmm. auto body deal uh, repair guy who runs an auto repair shop and he had a past relationship with the birth mother uh, in this case the victim Rachel Boyd 
this is really scary. So, how is this ripping the family apart? How is this? I mean, this is, this has to be you know destroying them in some some cases. Grace is like in the well, middle of a nightmare. So how does it yeah, rip Grace, them apart, Grace and is, how do they not, you know, get get further apart? Well, you know, Grace has uh, Grace has her her own challenge in terms of paying for Penny's uh, her daughter's defense, and um, you know, trying to trying to put her energy and focus on helping her daughter at what appears to be a very critical juncture in this, in this case. But the business that she runs, this pizza parlor is under tremendous financial yeah. pressure. And her son, Ryan, who runs the pizza parlor after he dropped out of school is very concerned that his mother's efforts are going to jeopardize the family business. And he believes it's a lost cause anyway. And Jack wants to help his sister both out of uh, out of guilt and obligation, and mm-hmm. so yeah, the fa- the family is really um, put through a bit of the of a of a ringer here, and you know again that's the the job of these books is if you know if I didn't create mm-hmm. conflict and at every turn or at least try to, you know to me the book doesn't have enough uh, resonance. So what what usually off works as the engine of these stories is is conflict and uh, and so every you know, at every turn I try to create as much conflict as I can. Oh, you did. I want page oh, three twenty-eight. I'm looking at it, and they put out. They, why did they decide? Why did they decide to put Penny on the stand? And the, the, uh, he's saying the evidence will show that the defendant was completely aware of her actions and that she's making it all up. And then she killed Rachel Boyd. That was her well, mother. Well, should should I answer should I answer all these questions, Fran, or should we have people just read the book? And let them let them figure themselves? it out. I don't want to give away too much, right? No, I mean seriously. Like there are there are kids that can fake a lot of things. I know that. They didn't try it with me in school. Nobody ever tried to fake being sick or anything like that. I, I could pretty much see through it. Then they didn't even try. But they didn't even want to get out of class. They complained when they were absent. I have no idea why, but they did. <laughs> they complained when I was absent, which I was never. So why why is Mitch the right person to handle the case? And there are a lot of people that don't have this power of perception, and he did. How does he know that there's something missing that she's really not guilty? Or maybe she's guilty. Well, he doesn't know that, and he no. can't really be be certain the thing that you know the mitch character he's got a son who has a a major drug problem and mitch's issues uh mitch also has struggles himself with depression and so in a lot of ways mitch is a mirror of penny in that he too has multiple facets to his personality he's got the the mitch who has some light in him and some joy in his heart and he has the mitch who is deeply troubled and um with his own mental health issues and so mitch is really the right person for this job in that he has a tremendous he has what is needed in order to get through this uh crisis which is a tremendous amount of empathy for penny so and, who is, who and so it's with that it's with that empathy that 
Yeah, that, that that helps him. But who does he reach out to besides Ruth Whitmore and other people? Who does he go to to see to back up what he's thinking, or might know what to what how to help him? Well, he's got his own. He follows his own thread in the story, and and uh, and really, there's there's a some some aspects of the murder that just don't quite add up to him. Uh, mm. And 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 so as he explores those aspects, he. He uncovers again. It's that peeling back the layers of what happened. So that's that's part of the fun of reading the book. Is you know how does he go about? How does he go about that? I did because I read the book in less than two hours, and I really did. Oh my gosh! Which is probably why. Yeah, the the problem is that I could read. This is my mother's fault. Blame it on her. Can't even blame it on the professor. When I was growing up, she said you have Hebrew. You have piano, violin, which is no big deal. All those, I love those things. And you have dancing school. I said, can I be punished? Because I hated dancing school. And she made me read like six books a week and had to take notes on them. So then when I had to write a book book report, I, I had the, I had it right there. So it's her fault. Yeah. What can I say? She said, um, reading is power. Yeah, reading is power. That's why I became a reading specialist. And I loved every minute of it. So... You put Penny on the stand. How did you create those scenes with between the prosecutor and between Mitch and everybody yeah. and Navarro? Cause how did you do that? Yeah, it was like I felt like I was uh, there. Yeah, that's you know I don't usually do a lot of self-congratulatory. Yeah, <laughs> but that's some good writing. That's like the that's you know occasionally you get you just get into the zone and you. And you feel it, and I, I kind of knew going into it that there was going to be a lot of meat on this bone. So for some people, it's too much. You know, they want oh, fast pace, fast pace. And in some cases, you know, the pacing on this moves, moves kind of somewhat languidly uh, at parts because I'm giving, a, you know, I'm sharing a lot of different aspects mm. of all these different themes that we've just talked about on this interview here. But um, I knew it was going to lead to a big crescendo in the in the court and uh and so i just kind of just dialed into that and um i found that the rhythm i again i watch a lot i watch a lot of court uh, courtroom Mm -hmm. not dramas but taped courtroom scenes of actual uh murder trials and so i just pulled from those first source materials and uh luckily had uh a legal counsel to help me out to make sure I got the the legal procedures right, and uh, and then really just had a lot of fun writing it. And sometimes that's that's what it takes. It just takes being loose and and letting go and having fun. Well, you're lucky you have the legal counsel to help you. I have my brain to help me, and that's about it. When I write a book, <laughs> and uh, it's like nobody. I, I had asked the fire department here because I did one of my faces behind the stone series. I had dead be- dead people that do things wrong, and the guy was explaining why he you know blew up something with arson. So I had to look up the research to make sure that I got it right because no one helps you when you know they they said they were going to help but they really didn't. So I was kind of disappointed. Yeah, I, I said it would be helpful. I, I yeah. Had, I had one of those uh, similar you know where I would call up a fire department and I asked them how yeah. I could make uh, a fire that's intentionally set look like um, it was an accident. Yeah. 
and they were they were they were pretty upfront with me saying, yeah, well, that's not the kind of thing we want to tell people how to do. So I kind of understood why they were a little cagey yeah, about Yeah, they don't want to tell me. Yeah. Well, if I want to know something about criminal defense or death penalty, I just email Philip Marlin and he'll tell me. I'm going, he's the best. Ah, there you go. Number one, Phil's number one. Yeah, he's coming on two panel shows next month too. To talk about oh, whatever I come friend. up with. Yeah, you always you always get yeah. the best uh, the best guests. I love it. So love it. this was interesting. Uh, you go put her on the stand. How how does you deal with the fact that she had more than one personality while she's on the stand? How does anybody deal with that? Because this well, was clever. I'd I like to see this in a movie. In that, yeah, I would like to see it in a movie too. It'd be great for me. Um, but I think you'll find uh, in that particular scene that they don't deal with it very well. It's a little, yeah, they it's don't. A little chaotic. It's, I don't, it's not something that uh, the judge or the attorneys have much training in. And so, um, yeah, that was a little bit of uh, that was a little bit of chaos there. But again, we kind of expected some chaos. Well, how did you create Judge Lockhart? Was he someone that you would want to be on the case? Oh, you know, uh, you know. Sometimes I get in my head a person I've met before, and uh, and then I just kind of cast them in the story. And in, in this case, um, I had done some work um, with addiction. Um, I created mm-hmm. a program called Writing for Recovery, where I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of help <clears throat> recovering drug addicts who are uh, who in exchange, instead of going to prison, they were given an opportunity to do um, sort of a, of a rehabilitation uh, program. And I was part of that program in, in creating this writing workshop for them as a way, a vehicle to, you know, sort of therapeutically begin to explore their own addiction through the written word. And one of the judges who ran the who ran this program um, was really just a very fabulous person. And, and so in my mind, she was Judge Lockhart in the story. Yeah, she was a really good, interesting judge. I mean, but I, I would be amazed to see if this had ever came in on a screen or something, how um, a defense attorney or a prosecutor has to talk to someone, but you never know who you're talking to. That's what that was the scary part because you didn't know if it was Eve or Chloe or Ruby who took over or Penny. Yeah, they didn't. Yet, they didn't really know what 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 was going on at that moment. I I think everyone just operated under the assumption that it was uh, that it was it was Penny uh, who was still on the stand, but you know, obviously, a lot went down. Yeah, well, then the courtroom scene was like really crazy. At the end, we won't say why. It was like, oh my God, all those people, and someone could have actually got, someone could actually get hurt during these doing these proceedings, can't they? You never know what's going to oh. happen. Well, you know, if if you knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't be a great book. <laughs> no, I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I had my suspicions about something. I won't say who, but yeah, because I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> Can I tell you? So, Jack and Ryan. Do they? Does Ryan ever change his perception of Penny, or is he going to hate her forever? Well, 
know, it's it's a it's a toss up there. I, I don't want to say too much about what Ryan no. is going to do or not do. But yeah, you know, a, people are fighting on Facebook. You would hope but... you would hope that that you know love prevails and family overall, but obviously we know that's not how it always is. No, it isn't, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately, someone does something wrong, and even if they didn't do it wrong, even if they're not aware and they get away with, you know, they're innocent or come out, for some reason there's always that stigma on them. And sometimes people just don't understand, you know, forget, and this person is out for a reason. So that's really scary. Um, well, what, if you were talking psychologists and even guidance counselors in school and educators and stuff, I had a student uh, once out of 36 years who had bipolar disorder. And I was not trained in that, but I picked it out. And I'm not the first, I'm not fast to send somebody to a psychiatrist or tell a parent that. But the parent went to a whole bunch of different doctors, and I was right. I didn't want to be right, but I was right. She would come into school, and she would be like, today's my name is Teresa. Her name was Teresa, and yesterday it was something else, and she would hide under the desk, and I'd have to come and get her because I was a dean. And it was scary. You know, how do you deal with that in real life? I mean, and Grace had to deal with that. So would she feel safe if Penny, you know, was not in a mental institution someplace else? And is Penny well, always going to, if think, she ever gets out, was she going to need help all the time? You know, I, I think that's a central part of the, one of the themes that the book touches on, which is the care yeah. for the mentally ill. It, uh, you know, if you're, you're with a child who's out of control, whose behavior potentially is, is a threat to the safety of your other children and you have to institutionalize a child, that comes with a tremendous amount of guilt, and it was extra. Uh, that guilt was extra prevalent for Grace in that Penny had already been abandoned before, so she just felt like, oh, I, I, I made this person become part of my life. I brought them into my life with a with a promise to care and love them as as my own child, my own biological child, and uh, and yet here she is facing a you know, painful decision of saying, well, I, I'm not sure I, I have the tools and the resources to provide her the care that she really needs. And mm. uh, she's she's really about to go and, and have Penny institutionalized at a secure facility for um, troubled youth or with mental illness. Um, there's no place that specializes in dissociative identity disorder, but yeah. there are youth facilities that specialize in bipolar. And um, that was a place where she mm-hmm. was going to bring Penny, but plans changed when her husband, uh, Arthur, died suddenly. So she rethought that she rethought that plan and said, I'm going to, I can't do it. I can't have her in somebody else's care. And they didn't think that she was schizophrenic, did they? They thought it was disassociative identity disorder or bipolar, but they didn't think she was schizophrenic at all. Or did one of the doctors think that she was? Uh, yeah, there's uh, one of her doctors when she gets arrested for murder. Yeah, she um, did. She's put into this uh, Edgewater facility. This doctor, yeah. Dennis Colombo, her first doctor, is uh, is certainly convinced that she is lying. 
that she knew exactly what she did, that she had complete control of her faculties when she committed murder, that she has an antisocial personality disorder, yeah. and she is, uh, she is a menace to society and belongs um, in a secure facility for life. And that is his diagnosis. And he leaves because there's a lot of turnover in these hospitals. And Mitch is the new doc, and he has a different, maybe has a different point of view. He doesn't know. He can't, he can't mm. make a diagnosis until he works with the patient. So part of the book is him working with the patient. That was interesting. So if someone were going to read this, what lessons can be learned by even educators, parents, psychologists, People that work in mental institutions, what should what lessons could be learned, and what should they do when they get a, a person like Penny? Why assume and get blinded? You don't know. Well, why not take the well, step to, know, to find out the real answer? I, I guess you know lessons are tricky. You know, I'm not sure I impart many lessons in the book, other than to say, um, don't be quick to judgment. Maybe. Yeah. That, um, that, you know, and to look at, uh, take a holistic approach when you're looking at treating mental illness, that it's not just necessarily always uh, uh, a pill and a solution that, you know, sometimes the combination of uh, medication and psychotherapy is, uh, is the right prescription to help somebody move forward and also to understand that mental illness doesn't just in, impact the person who's suffering from a condition, but it has impact on their family and loved ones as well. That's true. And then most of the time, as I see in school too, with the kids that supposedly have ADHD or whatever, that that's why I'm doing this on the 25th. So, so many people try to medicalize them and give them medicine before they figure right. out what's wrong. And that's scary. Right. So what's next for you? What am I getting next? Well, next I'm working on a book. The title is uh, called My Wife is Missing. And it's about oh, a, 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 guy who, uh, a guy who shows up. His name is Michael Hart. He, uh, he's on vacation with his family in New York City. They're staying at the Marriott Marquis overlooking Times Square. He is coming back to his hotel room with some pizzas for dinner, and he goes into the hotel room and finds that all the suitcases except for his are gone. His wife is gone. His kids are gone. And that's the start of the book. That's scary. I can't wait to get that one, too. Oh, my God. Seriously, people. Well, hopefully the so, hits will keep coming. So, yeah, you can you can find me, like I said, you can find me online at uh, Facebook, oh, good. DJ Palmer Author, and, uh, and the website, djpalmerauthor.com. And that's where I kind of keep the latest and greatest happenings in my world of writing. Well, you have a great world of writing, and you know had a good teacher, let me tell you. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, my father, Michael Palmer, great, great author, great mentor. You know, well, I was lucky. I got to interview him, I think, once or twice before he got sick. And I was like, as a matter of fact, I have to say this. I had a um, problem with my thumb, my right-hand thumb. I think I was emailing him while on the phone with your father when he did a loan interview, and he said, go to physical therapy, don't go to do this. And he was right. I went to physical therapy, and I never had problems with my thumb again. Oh, good. Yeah, my dad was great at diagnostics like that. He helped yeah, a lot of he people was great. over the course of his career. 
I wish he was here now with my two trigger fingers on my other hand because by typing too much, they tell me. (laughs) Ah. But this, what can I say? Uh, This has been fun. I I love this book, really. People, um, my review is on Just Reviews. I put it on there this morning. And the book is coming out when? Tomorrow? Comes out tomorrow, Fran. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun talking with you. It is fun, and this is this is great. And I hope I get to do another one. Do you do panel shows based on you know different um, topics that you do in your book? No, I don't. I don't you do know, anything but write, and then I show up when somebody tells me to show up somewhere. That's pretty much what okay, I do. Okay, I'm glad you showed up. So. <laughs> okay, but everybody, it's a beautiful day outside, and I say this at the end of every one of my shows. Just one small ask: when you go outside, please protect yourself and wear a mask. Because this virus is Love. going anywhere anytime soon. What can I say? Thank you, Daniel. Enjoy your coffee outside. I wish I had a deck to sit outside. That sounds so pretty. Everyone have a great so day. So beautiful. And bye. Thank you. Thank and you, bye. Fran. Appreciate it. You take care. Goodbye.